It's great to see you all. Glad to be back. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is uh, Chris. I uh, go to Trails Church, which is in the southeast of Winnipeg, and so I'm really happy to be back with you all again. Um, yeah, in the Psalms today, we're also going through the Psalms at Trails, so I'm excited to uh, get a double dose today. There you go. Well, uh, before we get started, I would just uh, love to pray for our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have been given this amazing book, a book, a book that was written to be on the lips of your people in song, um, that you've given us this capacity not only to uh, understand your word, but we get to write music and, and sing and give you praise. Um, Father, I, I ask that as, as I preach that these realities would, would be driven deeper into our hearts, that we would love and treasure the truth. Father, that, that folks would, would know what it means that you are indeed a refuge and fortress, a protector of your people. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So when we, when we approach the Psalms, we must remember that there is an entrance that we must go through. As you may have learned, Psalms 1 and 2 provide us with an introduction to the entire Psalter. As we are walking down the path of life, Psalm 1 presents us with the two ways we can walk down. We can either walk the way of the wicked, which the Psalm warns us is the end of which is ultimately a waste and ends in destruction. Or we can walk down the way of the righteous, leading to flourishing and stability. But before we can continue walking down the way of the righteous, we immediately come up to a gate. Here we see that Psalm 2 tells the reader of the Psalms that the entry point for walking down the way of the righteous is recognition and submission to the Lord's anointed. Therefore, to enter the Psalter, to learn the way of the righteous, we must enter by the wicked gate. That is, the Lord's anointed King. This two-part introduction casts a vision for the entire book. As teacher, uh, Bible teacher Bruce Waldke explains, Psalm 1 tells us for whom the Psalter is intended, the righteous, and Psalm 2 tells us about whom it speaks, the king. Psalm 1 provides us with the book's purpose to instruct us in the law of the Lord. Psalm 2 tells us that its message is about the Lord's reign and that through his anointed king. But here's, here's the weird thing about that, folks. The Psalms don't really provide us with any new information about the things of God or God himself. The Psalms are primarily reflections and meditations on how God has already revealed himself and his past actions. Certainly the Psalms fill out with greater detail things concerning God and his purpose in the world, but not with the main purpose in mind to simply explain more facts about God. But if that's true, how then is the purpose of the Psalms to instruct us in the law of the Lord and to tell us of His anointed? I'm glad you asked. 
This is why we, when we come to the Psalms, we must remember its function. It was a very functional, well-used book in the life of the nation of Israel. The book of Psalms was the royal hymn book of Israel. But we need to discuss this a bit more before we, uh, in order to understand how truly significant that is. The Psalms were written to be sung. They were written to be sung. They were intended for the musical worship of the nation of Israel. And we need to recognize just how massive of a point that is. We take it for granted that God created us and commanded us to sing. That's wild. God, in His providence, has told the world to sing His praises. Why? Why has He done that? Why has He created us with the capacity to sing and make melodies and compose music? Why? Have you, have you ever considered that? God has revealed Himself through the medium of the written Word. But He has also commanded us to worship Him in singing. Because something happens to us, folks. Something happens in us, in our hearts and minds, when we engage in the act of music making. It engages our hearts and our infections in a way that merely reading something doesn't. We can, we can read the truth and understand it and love it, but singing is the means God has ordained to get that truth from here to here. Singing is a God-ordained mechanism created to help the truth of Scripture make the long journey from our heads to our hearts. That is, that is beautiful, brothers and sisters. And it's massive to consider that that's how God designed us to be, to sing. And although God has revealed Himself in this way, we need to think about, if you think that the Bible is not just a book of facts, you know, have you ever, and He's written so in all of these amazing ways. You know, the, you ever considered that God has done, uh, has written so many different kinds of genres and forms and kinds of writing in the Bible? You know, have you ever asked yourself, why didn't God just drop a completed book from the heavens titled, The Facts Everyone Needs to Know About Me? You ever asked that question? I, I think it's pretty darn significant. God did not reveal himself by listing facts about himself. I know some of us might wish that the Bible was just a collection of propositional truth claims, but it's not. The Bible... The majority of it is made up of stories and poetry. There's all kinds of different writing in Scripture. Why? Well, because God created us in such a way that stories and poetry communicate the truth more effectively and to get that truth from here to here. So if you think that the Bible is just a book of facts to be learned, of information to be categorized, you know what you're going to get out of the book of Psalms? Not much. Not nearly as much as you could. 
Because the Psalms are here to instruct us by, by way of making us feel something. There was a songwriter by the name of Yip Harburg. I don't, don't ask me about his name. I don't know. Uh, and, who, he, and he summarized this idea perfectly. This, Yip Harburg, is, he's uh, known for writing uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, uh, a song I'm pretty sure we all know. Now, this is what he had to say about songwriting. Words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. A song makes you feel a thought. Words make you think a thought. Music makes you feel a feeling. But a song makes you feel a thought. And that's, that's just what the Psalms are here to do. To engage your affections and make you not just understand the truth, but feel and treasure and love the truth. If we do not understand this, we will not be able to know how the Psalms ought to function in the life of God's people, in our lives. To me, this is also one of the greatest challenges in preaching the Psalms. And yes, while of course all of God's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, I think the Psalms do it best when we sing them. And two, when we, when we read them, it can be a challenge. Especially because most of us probably don't like poetry. Uh, I do. I like poetry. But I'm also weird. Um, maybe you hated studying Shakespeare in high school. Uh, I love Shakespeare, but again, I'm a weirdo. Uh, but I, I can't, I really can't blame you. Because Shakespeare wrote plays. They're not meant to be read. They're meant to be watched. They're, they're not meant to be just read in a classroom. And in the same way, while we should and must read and meditate and memorize the Psalms, they're meant to be sung. Because something different happens. It's one thing to read, O Lord, our Lord, how awesome are your ways. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And another thing to sing, O Lord, our Lord, oh, how awesome are your ways. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Nevertheless, even, even the exposition of the Psalms, even there, we pray that by the Spirit, God will move His truth from our heads and into our hearts. So now, as we come to our text today, we must do so with this context of the function of the Psalms in mind. The Psalms were the royal hymn book of Israel. And by virtue of our submission to the Lord's anointed, anointed King, Jesus Christ, it is ours as well. And from this we read, study, meditate, and sing today. So let us stand together and read Psalm 46. To the choir master, the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength. 
a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. You may be seated. Man, I just love this song. It just gets me stoked. Before we dive into the body of the psalm itself, we need to pause first at what is called the superscription just before verse 1. Now, this is the, maybe in your Bible, the all caps uh, just above verse 1. Now, these superscripts are part of the inspired text of Scripture and are for our edification and understanding. Now, the titles listed above them, uh, above maybe the, like the chapter number, those were included by the translation editor, but these superscripts are part of the biblical text. So here we read, to the choir master, of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. So the word Alamoth is a word we do not know uh, the, precisely what it means. Uh, in these superscripts, there are several words like this, actually, that we do not know the precise meaning of. They are either musical instruments or another musical or liturgical term. So while we do not know the precise meanings of these words, I love that we have them because it demonstrates that the book of Psalms is a functional book. These words are examples of the Psalms' use as the hymn book of the nation of Israel. The word Alamoth, whatever it means exactly, informed the worship of the people. But here we also learn about the authorship of this psalm, that it is attributed to the sons of Korah. So it is attributed not to one person, but to a group of people. So who, so who are these sons of Korah? Well, we learn from the book of First Chronicles that the Korahites as they were called, were a clan of the Levites charged with different aspects of temple worship. So they were a division, a group of the priesthood. And 12 psalms are credited to have been written by these priestly descendants of Korah. First Chronicles 6.33 tells us that the sons of Korah were one of the groups organized by David for music in the temple. And because of the breadth of their existence, the range of these psalms could have been written any time between David's reign and the time after the exile. But who was this Korah from whom this Levitical clan gets its name? Well, some of you astute 
students of Scripture. You might recall an infamous man by the name of Korah from Numbers chapter 16. This Korah was the leader of an attempted rebellion against Moses' leadership. This Levite, Korah, and a few hundred other men got a bit tired of Moses during the years of wandering in the wilderness. This chapter, honestly, is one of the most underrated, dramatic texts of Scripture. It is, there is so much vivid action in this story, number 16. Moses tells Korah and his men to come back another day and see whom God will choose to lead his people. And in spectacular fashion... God made his decision as clear as day by causing the ground to open and it swallowed up Korah and all of his men and they were delivered alive to Sheol. It's a rough way to go. (laughs) Evidently, some of Korah's sons were still alive and carried on the name of their foolish forefather. Eventually, these Levites wrote 12 of the Psalms. However, it is interesting to note that all of the Korahite psalms are clumped together in two places. Psalms 42 through 49 and 84 through 88, uh, except for 86. So the psalms of the Korahites were also thematically organized together. The section of the psalms we are in today uh, has at times been called the Songs of Zion. Zion being a name that corresponds with Jerusalem. Why? Well, Psalms 42 through 49 emphasize this theme of God's presence in Jerusalem and by extension his place of rule over all the earth. Mentioning the house of God in uh, 42, dwelling on his holy hill in 43, God's established throne in Psalm 45, here in Psalm 46, the city of God, his holy habitation is mentioned. The main theme of 47 is God sitting on his throne, ruling over the earth. And 48 is most explicit in extolling God's rule from Mount Zion. This is why this group of psalms has been referred to as the Songs of Zion. Now, although we cannot assert the direct intention of the sons of Korah, it is important to note the significance of this considering the authorship. That the descendants of the guy who rebelled against God's authority, wrote primarily about the Lord's rule over all the earth and his power to assert and defend his authority from Jerusalem. I think they learned the lesson from old grandpappy Korah. And it is the theme of God's rule over all the earth and his decisive action to defend his people. That is exactly the theme we see in Psalm 46. And this is pretty immediately evident, just like right from the jump. The psalm begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. It begins with a statement of faith, an affirmation of God's character. And we see this reiterated elsewhere. Now let's take a brief look at the uh, structure, the organization of this psalm. It is broken up into three verses or strophes, as they're called, as we can see them divided by this word selah at the end of each, ver- uh, end of each uh, section. 
There is also a refrain in this song, a repeated line in verses 7 and 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now remember that this is a song to be sung. So for example, if I were to organize Psalm 46 into maybe a modernized song structure, it would kind of look like verse 1, verse 2, chorus, verse 3, chorus. So this refrain or chorus reiterates and reinforces the theme and the main idea of the psalm that God decisively defends and protects his covenant people. And these selahs clue us into how the whole psalm is organized as each verse or strophe makes a point as well. Now the word selah is another example of the functional nature of the book of Psalms. As selah is another musical or liturgical term. Again, the exact meaning and use of the word selah is not known, and there are a few different opinions of what it could be. Now, what I am about to say is my view, my opinion of what selah means, so don't start any fights with me or anyone else if you disagree. So I believe that selah has both a musical and liturgical or uh, worshipful function. Some have summarized its function as pause and reflect. Pause and reflect. So the intended purpose might very well be that as this song was sung, sung, Selah was used to indicate a musical interlude so as to give the people singing or listening a brief moment to pause and reflect on what was just sung. And I think, I think that is beautiful and an important thing to consider when we worship together in song. Our songs today also often have musical interludes where the instruments play on as we wait to sing the next part of the song. Here's the thing, folks. That 5 to 20 second interlude isn't just there for you to stand and wait to sing again. And it isn't there just so you can look at how talented the mus- musicians are. Remember that when we sing together, that the act of worship isn't the singing and playing in and of themselves. The act of worship is our singing in conjunction with our minds attributing to the Lord the praise due His name and our hearts treasuring the truths we are singing. That's what makes it worship. Anyone can sing a song or play an instrument. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God cares far more about what's going on in here than what you sound like. So I believe Selah is an important reminder for us that when we are worshiping in song, that our hearts ought to be engaged and our minds actually considering the words we're singing groundbreaking. Don't be unaware of the words you're singing. Seriously. Consider them. Think on them. Be aware. Be engaged. Not just musically, but also worshipfully. So when there is a brief musical interlude, remember that that isn't just a few seconds for you to tune out and listen to the music. Spend those moments worshiping by meditating upon the words you just sang. Consider their implications for your life. 
Spend a few seconds praying. Ask God that he would help you to love and obey the words you are singing. Pray that those around you would grow in their love of Christ and that the Spirit would drive these truths deep into their hearts. Pause and and reflect. So here in Psalm 46, the point of reflection and meditation is the reality that God is the fortress of his people and what that truth means for us. So again, we see the psalm begins establishing this point on the outset, that God is our refuge and strength. He is our place of protection, our safe haven amidst the many troubles of this world. And he is very present in his help to us. This phrase already sets up the other theme of God dwelling with his people. God is not far off in some far off land and must come a great distance to help us. No, he is a very present help in trouble. John Calvin, commenting on this word, uh, wrote that God comes seasonably, seasonably to our aid and is never wanting in the time of need as often as any afflictions press upon his people. And so what is, what is the result of this? We see this in verse 2. Therefore, massive word right there, therefore, we will not fear. This is the result. The reality of God's presence with and protection of his people gives us the power to stand against fear and trust in God even in the midst of this tumultuous world. And the circumstances matter a lot here. Because other people aren't really all that impressed with your fearlessness or your God when you're fearless when things are peachy keen. God gets greater glory when he proves your confidence in him when things are at their craziest and their worst. I mean, the imagery here is just cataclysmic, folks. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. That doesn't happen very often, folks. Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at his swelling, good night! We're talking about worldwide catastrophe. But remember, remember, this is poetry. This is figurative language. The language is meant to be hyperbolic, an exaggeration to describe the kinds of perils God's people will face. But I I love what the sons of Korah do here. I love it. Note that these aren't ifs. We have for those, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The Korahites present these cataclysmic perils as things that are just to be expected. It's not, a, it's not ifs, it's when. These kinds of things are just characteristic of life in this tumultuous world. But likewise, fearlessness in the midst of this tumult is what should be characteristic of God's people. Here's the problem with texts like this. The problem 
is that we often read these kinds of verses and just assume that they're just speaking of just general problems that we experience in life. And while it is true, of course, that God is a refuge and that you can be fearless despite any crazy life circumstance, that doesn't mean that these verses are just referring to this idea generally. This is the danger we encounter when we approach Scripture with a mindset that just looks for how it might directly be applied to our life's circumstances. Yes, of course, of course, yes, we ought to seek to apply Scripture to our lives. But first, we must study and understand what the author is actually trying to communicate first. If we fail to do so, we will actually miss out on the depth of what God's Word is actually teaching us. So again, while it is true that since we have confidence in the Lord, despite landscape-changing and world-altering catastrophe, we can also trust and not fear in the daily ongoing struggles of our lives. While that is true, there is something more specific here that the psalm is trying to teach us. So, The first section ends with the mountains crashing into the surging sea. And now, verse 4, what do we see? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The imagery, two different bodies of water, it's a direct point of contrast. Where before we had surging seas, here we have a gladdening river. The holy habitation of the Most High. The image is then explained in verse 5. God is in the midst of her. So the the river here is symbolizing the Lord's life-giving presence dwelling in Jerusalem. And what is the result of God's presence with his people? Two things, folks. One, she shall not be moved. The city is steady and stable because God is with her. She's not going anywhere. Two, God will help her when the morning dawns. God's presence also means that he is present and able to help his people. Now, this is interesting because these are actually somewhat conflicting ideas at first glance. I mean, didn't we just say that God's presence means safety and stability? If so, then why would God's people need help or deliverance? Well, that might appear to us to be conflicting because we are given to the assumption that the safety and stability we have because of God's presence with us means that we will be free from hardship or peril. No, God's God's presence means that you are stable and secure even in the midst of suffering not to completely remove you from ever experiencing it. This help that Israel is expecting here in verse 5 gives preview of what kind of dire straits they are in. They need God to act. They need His help when the morning dawns. And even this image of the morning dawn is is used to refer to other times of deliverance in Israel's history. The, The dawn is associated with these last-second, buzzer-beater, 11th-hour acts of God to deliver His people. And we see this no place better than in the Exodus at the crossing of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies, 
bearing down on Israel, right? They're doomed. All hope is lost. And what happens? Exodus 14, 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Sure, God could have not let Pharaoh and his armies pursue Israel after they left Egypt. He could have had, still had them cross the Red Sea to demonstrate his power to them. He could have stopped Pharaoh's armies before they reached the shoreline. But no. God wants to demonstrate to his people the kind of God he is by demonstrating to them the kind of deliverance he can accomplish for them. Not just any old victory, but the biggest, grandest possible route of a victory that can possibly be won. And now as we look at verse 6, we see the kind of tumultuous circumstance Israel required deliverance from. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. This is very important. It's probably the most important verse in understanding the author's intent for this psalm. And the language of this verse draws out the connections between verses 2 and 3 and here in verse 6. The word here translated as rage is the same Hebrew word used in verse 3 where the waters roar. It's the same word. And again, the word translated totter in verse 6 is the same Hebrew word for moved in verse 2. So the mountains are actually the tottering kingdoms, and the waters of the sea in verse 3 are the raging nations. So we see that verses 2 and 3 are not generic metaphors about challenging life circumstances. They are specific metaphors corresponding to other nations warring against God's people Israel. There is still another connection to be made as the same word for moved in verse 2 and totter for verse 6 is also used in verse 5. That the city of God shall not be moved. This heightens the point of contrast that although the kingdoms are tottering, the city of God is not moved at all. She's strapped in, rock steady. Jerusalem stands secure amidst these warring nations. And why are they secure and fearless in the midst of these warring nations? Because at the mere utterance of God's voice, the earth melts. Good night. We had cataclysmic imagery before. Mountains crumbling, tidal waves crashing. Now the earth is just outright melting. But what is the clarion call heard in the midst of all the chaos? The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is the title Yahweh Sabaoth. The word hosts refers to God as the commander of armies. The one who has legions of angels at his beck and call. So when you hear the word Sabaoth in a mighty fortress or another hymn, you'll know what it's referring to. And the psalmist also refers to God here as the God of Jacob. 
that Jacob is one of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Jacob was given the name Israel by God to become the namesake for the nation. So this is another way of referring to God as the God of the nation of Israel, but also calling back to the history of Israel in the patriarchs. And again, we see here the theme of the psalm that God is a fortress, a stronghold for his people. They are protected and, and out of reach from the nations that are raging. But there is something significant here about these raging nations. What does this call to mind? What specifically in the Psalms might this refer to? It calls back to the beginning. Psalm Psalm 2, back to the the wicked gate of the Psalter, as it were. Psalm 2 begins with the raging nations. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. We must remember that this is the theological and historical setting or context of the rest of the book of Psalms. The way of the righteous goes through the gate that is submission to the Lord's anointed king. So here in Psalm 46, we see an outworking of that reality. This psalm is referring to our, or reflecting upon a time of physical deliverance in the history of Israel. However, what are these warring and raging nations doing ultimately? Ultimately, by their attempts to destroy God's people, they are in full-scale, outright rebellion against God and His anointed King. Remember, this psalm isn't primarily about your daily struggles, your frustration at work, or the person who treated you in a business deal, or your family members that drive you crazy. The calamities pictured here are representative of the tumult and conflict within the political and national realm typifying mankind's rebellion against God's rule and his anointed king. Now, as we move into the last section of this psalm here, I want to address something that I have not yet acknowledged. This psalm is probably most well-known because of one verse, or, or should I say, part of one verse. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. This part of of verse is lauded in song and story upon cross-stitch pillows, mugs, wall art, Instagram bios, and Facebook posts the world over. It's a very well-known verse, and yet it's very misunderstood. Why? Well, because it's devoid of its context, and the verse is stripped of its meaning. You see, one of the often neglected things that context helps us to understand is tone. Tone. What what tone the author takes with the words and ideas he is communicating. For example, take 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, read at hundreds of weddings, maybe even some of yours. And while there is nothing wrong with having this beautiful chapter read at your wedding, our characteristic use and sometimes abuse of this text has led to us completely misunderstanding the tone and intention of Paul 
We are unaware of the fact that 1 Corinthians 13 is actually a rebuke, a correction to a local church that does not understand what Christian love really is. And so we see here in Psalm 46, 10a, what kinds of things do we associate with it? What do we assume the tone of be still and know that I am God is meant to be? And I don't know where down the line this happened, but there seems to be some kind of association between this text and the still small voice of 1 Kings 19 when God speaks to Elijah. Another very abused and misunderstood text, but to which our text today bears no substantial connection. But from this association, or even without it, the verse, be still and know that I am God, is understood as a whisper, conjuring up peace and serenity. God just wants me to be at peace and meditate upon him. Sometimes this can even get rather new agey in its intention. But even if that is not one's intent and someone has good thoughts in mind, a whisper or a statement meant to conjure up images of serenity and tranquility is a far cry from what this verse is actually intended to communicate. What do we have so far in Psalm 46? God is a refuge when we will not fear, even though the earth is fallen to bits. Mountains crumbling into the ocean, tsunamis, earthquakes, grand catastrophe. And despite all of this, God is like a river, dwelling and protecting his people. From what? From nations and kingdoms, rebelling against God's rule of the earth and against his anointed king. And now, what do we come to in verses 8 and 9? Let's read, shall we? Come behold the works of the Lord, how he brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Slap it on a coffee mug. Here we see the Lord in action. You see, God is not just our refuge and fortress. Yahweh Sabaoth gives us cause not to fear just because, not just because he is a safe haven of protection, but also because he is a warrior for his people. The Lord decisively acts in the defense of his people. Verse 8 is an invitation not to fight, but to survey the stilled battlefield. Look how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease. He destroys all their weapons and means of warfare. God makes peace on earth not by a treaty, but because there's nobody left to fight. And it is at this point, at this point, God speaks. But here is the error we are making when we come to verse 10. We assume that God's speech is directed at his people. When instead, God is not speaking to his people, but to the nations. Look back at verse 5. It is in response to the nations raging and kingdoms tottering that God utters his voice. So here in verse 10, he uses that earth-melting voice of his. This isn't a whisper. This isn't an invitation to peace and tranquility. This is a demand for recognition. 
Be still and know I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Sit down and be quiet. I am ruler and only sovereign of the universe. I am God and you are not. And even though God speaks to the nations, what should our response as God's people be? This command to be still and know that he is God should call us to respond like Job. Beholding the works of God, his desolations on the earth. We should repent in the dust, put our faces in the ground, put our hands over our mouths and say, Woe is me, I am undone, you are God and I am not. And when with our submission to his lordship, we can stand and say in awe and worship and gratitude, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. I want to address what I imagine many of you may be thinking. Oh no, do I need to throw away my Psalm 4610 coffee mug? Do I need to hide my be still wall art? Do I need to get my favorite tattoo removed? No. No to all of those things. You don't need to throw anything away that has this verse on it. But you should, and you you need to know and recognize what it means and what your response should be. So next time this verse comes up in your life, as I'm sure it will, use it as an opportunity to humbly point others to the kind of God we need to be still and know. Tell them that this verse reminds us that God is our fortress and a warrior that protects his people from all their enemies. Tell them that the Lord's presence with us allows us not to fear even when the nation's rebellion against God is so painfully on display. And warn them that God destroys those who seek to destroy his people. And even though we might still experience hardship, and even though we might still be afraid and anxious, now, we pray that as we meditate and sing this song, that God would move this truth from our heads to our hearts, and we would grow in our confidence in God as our fortress and protector. Now, the image of God this psalm paints for us is one that some of us want to run from. We want to run from the fact that God in His wrath brings to ruin those who rebel against His rule, past, present, and future. But this is our God. Yahweh is a warrior king who rises to the defense of His people. And it is a warning to those who think that they can continue to rebel and not submit to God's rule over the universe, including your own life. Because there is another thing we don't like to consider. God as ruler over all things has rightful authority over your life. He is king, not just in an abstract sense, in the world. He is king of your life. He is ruler over your life. He sets the agenda. You are accountable to him. And though you might not be aware of it, your 
willful disobedience to his laws and rejection of his authority over your life will lead to your ultimate ruin and destruction. You have no means. You have no means to defend yourself and nothing to offer him by which he would relent. But this text warns you that those who look to God as a refuge and fortress, they are the ones who escape his wrath and experience deliverance. Amen? God has established his king in Zion, Jesus Christ. And though Jesus came first as a suffering servant, he did so willingly in order to secure the means by which anyone who turns to the Lord in faith can receive refuge against his wrath on our rebellion. One of my favorite theologians, Shilin, once said, this text is warning you, the Lord is a warrior, but for all who repent and believe, there's plenty more in store for you. Because though he came first as a suffering servant who died and rose in order that we might become the people of God, he is coming back as a conquering king. And although this psalm is a song of praise and remembrance for God's, of God's deliverance of Israel from warring nations, it certainly bears future eschatological anticipation. Because today, we do experience the opposition of the nations. We do see their rebellion against the rule of God and His anointed. And we wait and we pray that God would strengthen us and that we would not be afraid. So as the psalm's function in our lives is to increase our longings and affections for the truth, I pray that this psalm increases your desire for Christ's coming to deliver His people. That when you are afraid, that when you fear, not if, when, maybe you'd sing, you'd read and you'd reflect upon these realities. Not as some magic spell to make the bad feelings go away. Because God's word is not an incantation that we recite to make our problems disappear. But because his truth is the only comfort and solace we have amidst the tumult of this world. And that doesn't make you less of a Christian or less, less of God's child to be afraid. It makes you God's child when you run to him for the protection that you need and for the peace that you require. This psalm anticipates the day of ultimate deliverance of God's people when Christ will return as our warrior king, silencing all opposition and establishing his rule on the earth. Don't be ruled by the headlines, people. Don't let the anxiety over the chaos in the world or some crazy news story or something that you heard upset you that it would remove your gaze from Jesus. He is with you. He fights for you. He is your fortress. Be still and know that He is God. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters that they would understand this. That in the midst of the fear that we experience in this world, because we do feel it, sometimes daily we experience the anxieties 
our lives of things that feel to be utter existential threats upon our lives, and we're scared, and we, we so often turn to things aside from you. But Lord, you are our refuge. You are our fortress. You are the only place that we can experience protection and peace. Because you, you dwell with us, Lord. You are not far away. You are near. You are near to your people. And you comfort us in the midst of all the chaos in the world. You protect us. You keep us close to your heart. I pray that you would do so for these folks. That as they experience the daily frustrations of life, even, even the, as they bear witness to the outright rebellion of the nations against your rule, Father, that they would not be afraid, that they would not be angry, that they would instead turn and trust. And not just in the sense that because it, we can trust in you, it, it makes everything better right away. Because circ- the circumstances don't change. Very often they don't, Lord. But I pray that in the midst of whatever circumstances they're in, that they would have peace and trust in you. That they would know that you are indeed a fortress, a safe haven for your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Folks, it's a pleasure to be with you again this morning. I'm sorry, but I do have to run after this. Um, But I'm so grateful to be here with you today. And I want to read our charge for you this morning. The book of Psalms is a royal hymn book that instructs us in the law of the Lord and tells us of His anointed King by working to move the truth of God from our heads to our hearts. That we would not just know the truth, but love and treasure it also. Psalm 46 does just that as it is an affirmation of faith that God is a refuge, a fortress for His covenant people. He is our remedy for fear in the midst of a tumultuous world, not just in general hardships, but specifically amidst the nation's rebellion against God and His anointed King. But God is not just our safe haven. The Lord is a warrior who fights for His people and makes peace on the earth by defeating His enemies. And while this psalm reflects upon a time of deliverance for Israel, it anticipates the ultimate deliverance of God's people when our warrior King Jesus will silence all opposition and establish His rule on the earth. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And he in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. But he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Go serve your king.